The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Father, how odd we are that we, a bunch of sinners in this room, can have hope. That you're a sin overcomer that you, through blood-bought power, can destroy pride and instill patience. That you, with blood-bought power, as we recognize our weakness, can make us strong. That you can do so justly and fully. We count on you today. You who made a way to allow your wrath to be removed from us apart from anything we could do. I pray that you would allow us to have such an enraptured sense of the gospel that we would be the people that you want us to be. That we would not respond to evil for evil but respond to evil with good. Make us lovers of others. Empower us to be bold proclaimers of your terms of peace and to live it out in our own lives, having experienced it deeply to our core, that we feel obligated to love rather than to hate, to extend patience and grace rather than anger and frustration. Be a very present help in our desperate neediness. Through Christ we ask such things. Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20, please. Deuteronomy 20. I have two handouts today, one for class and one for your reference. The one for your reference will look, for, will look intimidating, and that's why it's for your reference. <laughs> Thank you. Today we face a question. And the question is sparked by last week's study. Most... Christian Bible studies that I'm aware of tell the Battle of Jericho story by having Israel walk around one time, two times, three times, four times, seven times on the seventh day. The walls come falling down and they proclaim the faithfulness of God in giving Israel the land but fail to address chapter 6, verse 21 of Joshua when it says, They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. If you had a five-year-old in Jericho that day, he would not have come out alive. If you had an infant in your arms, you as well as the infant would have been slaughtered. 
And that's very heavy because life is so precious. Life is nothing to take for granted. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God had said, the powerful words, I, even I am He. I am the one who kills and I am the one who makes alive. I, Yahweh, am the one who wounds and I am the one who heals. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Life is a gift. It's not a dessert. And God had determined that through the conquest, this group that was living in the turf that he had promised his people would die. So our question today is, on what basis did God call for that? Could he be calling for that today? When a father in Utah cries out, God told me to kill my child, or when an abortion clinic bomber shows up and declares, it was the book that led me to do what I did. What do we do with that? So, I've got 45 minutes to try to unpack what I believe to be both the truth of the Old Testament wars of God and because we've actually covered this when we taught through Deuteronomy 7, I'm going to move through that rather quickly and you have a sheet of reference loaded with passages to clarify for you the biblical support for what I'm about to go through quite quickly and then we're going to move ahead and focus most of our time on the so what for us today. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are holy. We remember that's where the Battle of Jericho story started in Joshua chapter 5 with Joshua being commanded to take off his sandals because the place where he was standing right around the region of Jericho on the east side of the promised land, it was holy, holy, holy because you were there. It was the place you had decided to make your presence known like you had in the Garden of Eden. And where you are is holy. And where you are cannot tolerate sin. Heighten our understanding of the seriousness of sin today. And heighten our affection for the work of Christ who bore our sin in His body. who received just judgment. Not because of what he had done, but because he was receiving what we were due. And may we 
gain a zeal to fight sin like you have, a passion for your holiness like you have. And may we be proclaimers of your terms of peace like we've never been before. That a world may receive such terms and joyfully accept humbling themselves before a God who is holy and who is worthy of our praise. May that kind of perspective, those kinds of affections, that kind of experience be what springs forth from the next 45 minutes. May I speak, Father, as one who has experienced unbelievable mercy. And may people encounter you as a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. but a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished to a thousand generations. Help us, Father, I pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 20, as we begin, I want to set a context for us. Here's where we're at. Why is it okay for God to call Israel to annihilate every man and woman, boy and girl in Canaan? And it was not at all okay for Hitler, nor would it be okay for us to do the same. Deuteronomy chapter 20 portrays two different kinds of of war. Both of them wars of judgment, but one of them a war of annihilation and the other one a war of defense or subjugation. So I want to distinguish these two kinds of wars because they're, all the wars in the Bible are not the same. The wars that are carried out by God, as I'm reading the text, show up in two different categories. On the one hand are the wars that were associated to the specific land that God had promised the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the, as Ezekiel 5.5 says, the center of the world. Remember, Israel has a mission. They are to be like a kingdom of priests. The entire kingdom of Israel is to be like priests at the sanctuary of God and all the peoples that surround them that were part of the curse underneath the curse of God were supposed to experience blessing through Israel and God had placed them in the center of the world the center of the ancient world All paths led through Israel. Egypt in the south would reach up through the promised land. All the Mesopotamian powers, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, would reach down through this land between 
And from there, God's glory was to emanate. As the people would encounter God at the temple, the people would become imagers, displayers of God's greatness. And God had chosen that the promised land would be his center. But you'll recall back in chapter 15 of Genesis that God had said, Abraham, I'm giving you this land, but not yet, because the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Your people are going to be slaves in a land that is not their own for 400 years. But after that, I will bring them out with great provision. And the exodus happens, and Israel has their eye on the promised land. Joseph had said, take my bones up, and when you arrive at the land, bury them there. God is a patient God. Unbelievably patient. Do this with me. You're still alive. Unbelievably patient. But the day comes for all when breath ends. For some sooner than others. And what happened for the Canaanites was an intrusion of what will happen to all at the end of the age. It's a similar picture of what happened at the flood, a similar picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the conquest is. The day of God's wrath became real, visible, immediate, right then for the Canaanites. You're in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Look with me at verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all of its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So God had given Israel a place for the twelve tribes. But if you read carefully, you'll see that the kingdom that he had promised Israel was much bigger than he had given the twelve tribes. He had promised a kingdom that would reach all the way to the Euphrates and all the way as far south as the river of Egypt. Israel was to be a kingdom at the center of which would be the people of Israel, and then beyond that the kingdom would stretch, and with Yahweh as the suzerain, there would be vassal states that would stretch forward. And as Israel expanded their, the kingdom beyond the borders of Israel proper to include all of the kingdom that God had promised, and indeed, ultimately, until the glory of God filled the earth as the waters covered the sea, As the armies would go forth, they would say, will you surrender to Yahweh? 
And if the people received their terms of peace, all was well. And they would become vassals of Israel underneath the sovereignty of God. But if they refused to surrender to Yahweh, they would experience his sword. That's what Israel was to do to all the peoples who were far off from Israel. But now look at verse 16. But in the cities of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Just as Yahweh your God has commanded you. Why? Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Obstacles to God-centered existence are very, very serious. And God saw these people as an obstacle. And at this time in history, the future judgment day that awaits all sinners who have not found respite in Christ, who took that future wrath for all who trust Him, for all who are not trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of of their sins and for the fulfillment of all of His promises, even eternal life, that judgment day, that wrathful day is coming. So there's two different types of war. And on the green sheet, you can see four general characteristics as I understand them for all of Yahweh's wars, and then they get distinguished. Let me just run through these, and I'm going to go relatively quickly, pausing only at two points. Number one, first characteristic of all God's wars, the Lord does the fighting. He is the warrior. And I'm not even going to go to scriptures to support this, but I've got them all written down on the reference note because I want to get to the so what part. Yahweh is the main fighter because first and foremost, these are not Israel's enemies. They're Yahweh's enemies. Sin is against Him. A religious undertaking. What we're told in Deuteronomy 23 is that when you're in the context of war, the warriors, if there's any type of nocturnal emission, that's how it's worded in the text, or if they have to go to the bathroom, in either case, they have to go outside the camp. And then it grounds it because in the camp is holy. I think this is why Uriah the Hittite did not sleep with Bathsheba even when David told him to because it was the season of Yahweh's wars of judgment and none of the warriors were allowed to have sex with their wives during this period. The camp is holy. It's where God is. In Joshua, I think this is why they had to be circumcised before they could go to battle against Jericho. It's why they celebrated the Passover, because this was a sacred event, different from most other days. This kind of battling. You enter into the land, 
All the precious metals, including those that would have been on the idols, belongs to God. They go into his sanctuary. What we read about in Numbers 18 is specifically, they're all going to be used to serve the priests. To allow what takes place in the tabernacle to function rightly. All the silver, all the gold, and this was Achan's sin. It was devoted to the Lord. God gets it. And then he gets all the pagan shrines because they get leveled to the ground, wiped out. It's Yahweh's booty. It's his, he's being exalted as the great warrior here. Violators become the enemy. If you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Violators of God's war become the enemy of God. And just to set a trajectory, the same spiritual influences that were manipulating the Canaanites and moving them to sin are alive and well in this world. And the battle scene has moved from a physical sphere to a spiritual one right now. And those who fail to take the battle seriously, who fail to confront obstacles, become the enemy. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of your God. Violators become the enemy. Now we leave the general characteristics and go specifically to the wars of annihilation. Not the wars where they offered terms of peace. No terms of peace were given to the Canaanites. Their judgment had been complete. Their, their sin had been completed. It was time for judgment to begin. But intriguingly, if anyone would have but repented of their sin and surrendered to the Lord like Rahab had, even though the judgment had been declared, it could have been reversed. It's amazing. So you have the Canaanite Rahab, who's a prostitute far from God, who recognizes the supremacy of God and sees her life rescued by a great redeemer. And then you've got on the other side, Achan the Israelite, warrior of God, who's supposed to stand up for God and treasure what he treasures and view as holy what he holies, what he, what he views as holy, and instead he looks like a Canaanite who's a rebel to God and he becomes the enemy. Focused on judgment, not genes. There was a time when I would call what Israel did genocide. And then I had a student correct me, and he's absolutely right. Genocide, we usually think of that for total annihilation of a people group. What the Bible describes is not 
genocide. It has nothing to do with genes. It has everything to do with judgment. And it's this element that will distinguish it full, wholeheartedly from anything that Hitler was trying to do. This is what we read about. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Do you hear an echo of Romans 8.28 in there? For I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's for whom things work together for good. It's with those who love God. Because God is faithful to those who love him. But where there is no love, where there is no love for God, this is how it defines it. God is faithful. He repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. That's what the wars of judgment in the Old Testament are about. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, are you going in to possess their land. Rather, it's because of their wickedness. This is about judgment on wickedness. The wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is not giving you this good land to possess because your righteousness. Rather, it's because of their wickedness. You are a stubborn people. What I get from this is that Israel has at their core the same problem that is bringing about the judgment on the Canaanites. Israel is wicked. Now what's really amazing is that the same word used for wickedness against the Canaanites at the beginning of Romans 9, at the end of Romans 9, this is what we read. Moses prays, God, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin uses the exact same word that at the beginning of the chapter he used to describe the Canaanites. You're not getting this because you're better than anyone else in this room. That's not why we get heaven. It's not why we receive mercy. It's not why wrath doesn't reach us. Mercy is that. Mercy. It's why Israel got the land, not because of who they were, but because God was taking the sin of one people seriously. And ultimately, as Deuteronomy itself testifies, he would take Israel's sin to account as well. Little New Testament, lest we forget that the same God is the God of the old, is in the new. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. For God loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. It's the only way to move from getting ready to perish to not perishing through believing in Jesus. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's what we're talking about with the Canaanites. They were condemned already. But Rahab, I believe everything is turned on its head. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if that wrath remains all the way up to your dying breath, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what's coming. The weightiness of God's wrath because he is holy and just. He does not take sin lightly. And as we read this book and we read the wrath of God coming down upon sinners, we shouldn't take grace for granted. Shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Why did God engage in these wars of judgment? Specifically, judgment wars of annihilation. Right now I can see four reasons. Number one, to root out wickedness. Number two, to cleanse the land from defilement. This was sacred space. It's where God's physical manifested presence would reside. And it's cleaning up the turf. To protect God's people from apostasy. This is the removal of obstacles part. To be able to identify those tendencies, those, those temptations that are constantly part of my life and say no more. And then to display the greatness of God as his power like it had done against the Egyptians when he brought them to the ground. That his power would be manifest and all of a sudden his people would also be lifted up in the eyes of the world. There's a pattern set when these big issues are called upon. What makes this war different than the flood is that there's humans involved in, that are agents of judgment. And there's patterns that are set that say God alone initiates such things. And if humans are involved in it, then it's at the mouth of a prophet and through, through the revelation of the word, the community is able to affirm that this man is the mouthpiece of God. Because there's been a long history of relationship and of promise. Things that would be very hard to match today. Number eight, all able-bodied men over 20 participate in wars of annihilation. It's only ended when every human, man, woman, boy, and girl, is dead. We do not hold to a doctrine that says that children 
are not sinners. Even children in the womb are connected to Adam, guilty before God, before they ever consciously suppress anything. All are in need of Jesus for salvation. All need salvation. And then we read Romans 1.18 that says God's wrath is revealed against all wickedness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. For me, that's, that's one of the big, big texts that make me understand how even those who are guilty in Adam, a child who dies in infancy, guilty, yes, but didn't suppress the truth. That the mentally retarded didn't suppress the truth. It's that text that is, is one of a series of, of different texts that suggest to me that children who die in infancy or the mentally retarded do go to heaven. Because God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness but it's revealed specifically against those who suppress the truth. But we must not hold to a doctrine that says children are not guilty until they sin. No, we are sinners who sin and all are in need of Jesus. We could talk more about that. But it's why I think that God is justified. He is justified to hold guilty as a sinner, the smallest child and the oldest man. How much do we feel the weightiness of sin? How intimately related are we to Adam? Are there really only two men upon whom all of humanity rests? You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. I think so. And all of our focus turns to the glory of the Son as the only answer to our deep, deep problem. Turn to Him today. Look to Him for help. Ask Him for forgiveness. And where real repentance reaches God, it will be met with real mercy. And all the wrath that we're talking about today will be poured out on the Son for you. So once all the precious booty goes to God and once all humans are annihilated, not because of genes but because of judgment, where there was no repentance, then Israel is allowed to claim all the rest of the spoils. Let's unpack this a little bit. first thing I think we should learn from this is that our God takes sin very seriously and that he has declared war and it's still declared today against all wickedness and rebellion and suppression of the truth. 
The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer in Joel, Rend your heart, not your garments. Repent, and you will find respite in God. Take refuge in him, and he will protect you as his people. The Yahweh roars from Zion, Joel ends, and then it says, but he is a refuge to his own. For Yahweh, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security, all is well in my life. Then suddenly... Destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That is the day of the Lord. But my prayer is that you are among those for whom Paul says in the very next line, but the day will not come like a thief for us. For we are not of the night, but of the day. We have eyes that are opened. We are awake, anticipating the coming of the Lord and anticipating it through the blood of Christ. In love, God sent his messenger, Jesus, to proclaim terms of peace. So the day, the intrusion of God in judgment came upon the Canaanites. I call it intrusion ethics. It's the normal pattern of how things are going to work at the very end, but at moments in history, God allows the ethic to intrude. And all of a sudden, what is not normal for mankind, for God's people, becomes normal for a brief moment in history. For Israel taking over the promised land, it was an intrusion of a future ethic. When we will stand reigning and ruling with Christ, and when Satan will be put underneath the church's feet in judgment. And all evil will be eradicated through the armies of the hosts of Israel. In love, God sent his messenger Jesus. This is the period we're living in. Before judgment day hits, he sends his messenger to proclaim the terms of peace. And if people will receive the terms that Jesus lays forward, all of a sudden, when Judgment Day comes, as surely as it will, those who've received the terms of peace will get mercy like Rahab got mercy when the Judgment Day hit Jericho. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. Good news! This is the third time in the Old Testament, all in Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 40, when the good news or gospel, like we understand the term gospel, this is the third time that it's used in Isaiah's book. Of one who would come, a messenger of deliverance, who in the very next chapter is going to be crucified on our behalf, Isaiah 53. He's proclaiming good news. Good news. He's announcing peace, proclaiming words of happiness. And he's saying, our God reigns. And because he reigns, as big as your problem is, he can fix it. As much hope as you need, he can grant it. As big as your sin is, he can eradicate it. 
because he reigns in the person of Christ. Good news. Will you receive the peace? Or will you resist? I want to do things my way. I want to keep looking at what I shouldn't be looking at. I want to keep holding my heart up against this person when I should give them love. I want to retain the bitterness, retain the anger. I want to continue in my lust, continue in my prejudice. No peace. Or will you surrender and receive it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to what? Bring gospel message, good news, hope, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Look at this line that's in red. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the judgment of our God. In Matthew 11, in Luke, no, I'm going to get this wrong. Jason could help me. I was on, I was on, okay. Matthew 11, Luke 4. Jesus cites Isaiah 61. Remember that? He's in the Nazareth synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, for he has anointed me to do all these great things. And then he says at the very end, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period, quotation mark. To proclaim the year, and I think that's where we're living right now. It's the year of the Lord's favor. That's not what the Canaanites experienced. They experienced the day of the judgment of God's wrath. But Jesus stopped because his first coming was only about the first part of this fulfillment. And the day of the judgment of God is going to come. Do you remember what happens in Matthew 11? John the Baptist, right after this, sends his guys. John's in prison. He's reading this text. Are you the one or are we to look for another? Jesus says, send this back to John. The blind receive their sight. The lame are able to walk. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Why would anybody be offended? Because John is still in prison and the fullness has not yet come. Do good to those who do evil. Love your enemy. When someone does evil to you, respond to them with good. For vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's the window we live in. A window of peace proclamation. Give it to your neighbor. Receive it yourself. The terms of peace. And what is true of Jesus... Isaiah 52, that's quoted by Paul in Romans 10, but he changes it from how beautiful are the feet of him to how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Because the church takes up the mission of Jesus. He was a peace proclaimer. Do you want to have peace with God? Do you want to have a peace that's able to overcome even the brokenness of this world? Surrender to God. Believe in me. 
receive me, find satisfaction in me. I am the bread of life. Or will you stiff arm him? The terms of peace are going forward before the king arrives. And he's coming. He will come. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And that's why I don't think there's ever the crusades were sinful. Because they missed the year of the Lord's favor. It's a window in history where the peace is being proclaimed through persuasion and through suffering. Not through force. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Rejecting God's terms of peace will result in destruction. Or maybe I should call it a sacrifice. Remember, God's wrath is going to be poured out either on the substitute or on the sinner. And here's where the imagery of Leviticus gets brought together with the imagery of the conquest and Yahweh's wars of judgment. Because when God talks about bringing his war of judgment on the Babylonians, on the Egyptians, he talks about it as getting his sacrifice ready. But rather than the sacrifice being on a substitute, it's on the actual sinner. That's what's happening. And that's why Christ on the cross is the ultimate substitute through sacrifice and he's also the recipient of God's holy war of judgment that should be brought on each one of us. That day is the day of the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. It's a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. So it's the day of the Lord, a day of vengeance. The the sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Do you see the imagery all being brought together here? Jesus is the Lamb of God who stands as our substitute. He's the sacrifice. But in that, God is performing his holy war conquest of judgment on Jesus instead of us. I'm going to hop over here and just jump to Hebrews. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's the world we live in. That's written for the church. Receive the peace with God. Run from what he is hostile against. Pray that God would give you the zeal that he has against sin and for his renown. That's who we want to be. Just rest in who God is for you in Jesus. We won't get perfect overnight, but we get a new direction and we progress over a lifetime to the day when the righteous will be made perfect. But rejecting, rejecting the terms of peace, there's only one alternative. 
If you reject the terms of peace, judgment day is all that will come. For those who do accept the terms of peace, Christ's sacrifice on the cross satisfies the wrath of God, breaking the stronghold of evil and enabling God to justly forgive and support. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Just let your hearts move up in worship. That that is the one, Christ Jesus, who died, and yes, who is risen, and who is now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. It's because of that that no one can condemn us. Because God has justified. If we were enemies, if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Christ, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. All authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus's. And yet right now, his kingdom is not of this world. So even though all the world is in his control, he declares, my kingdom is of another age. This age is the age of curse and destruction. And he's the king of the coming age. And that coming age is intruded into our world in the person of Jesus. But we don't want to get too comfortable here. Remember how Jesus talked to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. The crusades would be happening. Abortion clinics would be being bombed. But that's not the case. Because in this window of the year of the Lord's favor, terms of peace are being proclaimed. And the kingdom is advancing. A kingdom that's not of this world. A kingdom that's expanding, not by force, not by a pistol, but by persuasion and through the suffering of my saints. That's what Jesus said. And we need to get that. Good news. Peace is possible. We can't force it. As a dad, I'm reminded recently, just as one of my children has been experiencing doubts, is God real? Could Jesus have really risen from the dead or did the church just make this up? Oh, I've got a... This frustration builds in my soul. Like, get it, this is life and death at stake, kid. Come on. Just give it up. If, I mean, what, what are you thinking? But, oh, I, I can't force her into this. I just need God to move in. And he's got to open up her spiritual eyes and let her heart be just to get it. God, this is all about dependence. It's his kingdom. We persuade, but we can't force. Every person has to choose As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. I pray that you're making that choice today. Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach back there in the Gospel of Luke. 
That's what he began to do. Now I'm going to tell you what he continues to do through his church. A church that picks up on his mission and all of a sudden carries forth the terms of peace and the power of Jesus working in and through us. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time that all evil is going to be eradicated? You're the offspring of the woman, aren't you? You're the one who's been risen from the dead. Is right now the time when all wrongs are going to be righted? Is it going to happen now? Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you, right now, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. It'll start in Jerusalem and then it'll move to Samaria, to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see how the Israel's mission is being fulfilled in the book of Acts? The conquest is happening again on a global scale. It's going to start now here and then it's going to move out to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But it's a conquest of a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a conquest that's happening by persuasion and through suffering. All by the power of God to give us a persevering grace as we await the day when he declares, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But in this season, we're in a battle, and it's a real battle. It's, it's, it's comparable to, but different than, the battle that Israel was experiencing against evil. Because they were... It would be like at the end of our age, after the year is over and the final day of this year of the Lord's favor, on that final day when judgment comes. That's where Israel was in relation to the Canaanites. The comparable reality is that the same spirit that was at work in the Canaanites deceiving them and that was at work in Israel deceiving them is at work today in trying to deceive us. And we're called to fight. Taking up the mission of Christ, the church is engaged in a spiritual battle and called to proclaim peace. Spiritual battle. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God and let your sword be his word. Let your feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There we are. We've got a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. Terms of peace. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, but how, will, how then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? How will they believe if they've never heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? And then he quotes Isaiah 52, which originally I believe meant the Messiah proclaiming the terms of peace, and Paul says it applies to the church. We take up the mission of Christ in what we're doing today. Not a mission of to proclaim the day of God's wrath, we're taking up the mission of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And he will come. And then when he comes, the day of the wrath will be there. But we we teach today in light of that coming, calling people to take seriously sin, 
All this new creation is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're about. All of our sin going on Christ, he became sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God and we proclaim it. I think this is my last point. No. Almost. Today, physical conquest, defense, or subjugation is not part of the church's mission. Hear that. It's not part of the church's mission. Why? Because Jew and Gentile alike are in Christ and there's no political boundaries. There's no specific ethnic peoples that make up the church and there's no specific ethnic boundaries land boundaries that make up the church. There's no distinction between a church in Canada and a church on this side of the boundary waters. And because of that, the whole idea of a physical conquest has been set aside in this year of the Lord's favor. But the battle is raging. It's a raging for souls of men to surrender to the king who is coming. He's broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and there's one new man. Physical wars are not necessarily wrong. That's a whole other topic. But I want you to see that that's not what we're talking about right now. Physical wars are not necessarily wrong but are not directly about Jesus' kingdom even though Jesus controls all things. But Jesus' kingdom is expanding not of this world. So physical wars on earth are not directly related to the expansion of his kingdom. What we're doing in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, is not first and foremost, it's not about the expansion of an earthly kingdom of God. It is about eradicating evil. But it's not directly related to the expansion of the kingdom of God or about God's people standing as his representatives to punish sin. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's where we're at. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. That's, it's, it's about persuasion. It's about testimony through suffering and endurance and proclaim message. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. I hope that was helpful. Um, You've got a lot to go back to on your reference seat to follow up. Pray with me. Father, we rest under the almighty holy hand We praise you that it is not a hand of wrath toward us if we are indeed in Jesus. Help us to battle against the evil of this world, to go against it with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to do so dependently for the sake of the name, to work through persuasion and through prayer and through suffering, if you call it to that. Give us a framework for understanding who you are and for what you're doing. Give us a passion for this
peace proclamation. What a mercy that you have given in this season of patience. But we know the day is coming. Help us to take that day seriously for our own lives, for the lives of our family, for the lives of our neighbors. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.